you do the same place? I don't think it's working. Yeah, it is working. Is it working? I forgot what we were supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Refuge is a safe place. Oh, and stop. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Where do I look? Eyes. Is it okay if yeah, I look there? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Explore. Explore. Their faith in Jesus. Mouth it. Okay. Go. Refuge is a safe place for people to... No. Mm-mm. That's not it. You ready? Safe place is a... <laughs> <laughs> Refuge is a safe place for all people. Refuge is a safe place for all people. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore... Why can't I remember? All people. Well, to restore and explore their faith in Jesus and his church. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus. And his church. Huh? And his church. And his church. There we go. This is good. Okay. All right. Action. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus and his church. Leave it to the drummer to get it right. <laughs> Perhaps we should just shorten it to refuge is a safe place because as many times as we said that, there was a challenge getting out the words. They even had cue cards, apparently. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. And yes, this is a safe place. And I'll ask you a question. Do you have safe people in your life? Or I'm going to ask a different question. Are you safe people to other people in their lives? What makes someone safe? What makes someone unsafe? We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And that's what we're looking at this evening. But let me catch you up on the prior episode. Last week, we looked at a famine, a funeral, and faith. There was a famine in Bethlehem. They ran out of food. People were starving literally to death. There was a Jewish family, the patriarch, Elimelech, Elimelech. I get it right. Moves his wife and his two sons into a foreign land. It's called Moab. They live there as refugees. There is a funeral, and Elimelech dies. He leaves behind his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. The sons get married. Their wives' names are Orpah and Ruth. They are Moabites. Ten years go by. The sons die as well. There are more funerals, more heartache, more pain, and there are no children or grandchildren for Naomi. And so Naomi is who we talked about last week, and she is all alone. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has no future. She has no hope. And it leads her into a deep depression of grief. But she hears that there is food again back in Bethlehem, her home. And so she begins the journey back to Judah with her daughter-in-laws. But on the way, she tells them, look, don't come with me. I'm going home to die. You don't have much chance there, but at least you have a chance of some sort of life here in Moab Please stay. And Orpah says, yeah, that's a good idea. And she concedes. She obeys her mother-in-law. But Ruth has that famous line, where you go, I will go. And then she has a conversion of faith. So there's family, famine, and funerals, and now faith. And she says, and your God will be my God. And the episode ended last week. They're in Bethlehem. They have arrived back home. The town is excited for their arrival. But Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter or empty. But what we saw last week is that Ruth is a safe place or person for Naomi. All the time, there's no judgment. There's no, hey, Naomi, you are really hard to be around right now. That's not, it's not that bad. She doesn't abandon her. She doesn't leave her. She is simply a safe person. She says, where you go, I'll go. 
In other words, I got your back. I asked my daughter Kennedy, who's in college, I said, is there a cooler, hipper way to say I got your back in 2023? Apparently not. If you have something, you let me know, because I'm not all that hip. There is a word in this story throughout the book of Ruth. The word is hesed. It's kind of the word in the entire book. And throughout the Bible, this word is used, and there's kind of a smorgasbord of translation. Sometimes it's kindness, sometimes it's loyalty, sometimes it's selflessness, sometimes it's steadfast, oftentimes it's unfailing love, sometimes it's simply just love. But these words don't really do justice to the word hesed. Hesed is simply love as God intended. It's the selfless, sacrificial, the love your neighbor as yourself, active brand of love going above and beyond what anyone would expect or even ask. Naomi is convinced that God's has said for her is gone. It has evaporated. But Ruth's has said for Naomi moves her to take action. And that's where we pick up this week, episode 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Begins like this. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. That name literally means strong. Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now, if you watch those shows on Netflix, especially the docudramas, you know the little thing they put right at the beginning of it, like this is a dramatization. We've been at the soccer fields all day in the sun, and I think it has melted my brain a little bit. <laughs> this is a dramatization of actual events. You'll see that sometimes at the beginning. That's what this story is. I mean, this isn't exactly how it happened, the, exactly the order it happened. He takes some liberties. And here he gives us a preview of what the characters are going to later discover, that Boaz is a wealthy and a powerful man and that he's a relative. He says, hang on to that thought for a moment. Verse 2, one day Ruth, the Moabite. Every time we get Ruth's name, it is typically followed by the Moabite. The author wants us to remember, this is Ruth, the Moabite. She is an outsider. She is a foreigner. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me knew it. Okay, Ruth, she's a new convert. She just came to her faith in God, and she has this active faith. She says, we need food. We're starving. We're going to die. And so I'm going to take action. I'm going to go out and I'm going to seek food. She says, God is good. He will not fail, fail me. I will find him in this season. I'm going active to find food. We just sang that song. And I know it's kind of a Christmas song, but I wanted to do it this week. Because that line in the song, though the winter is long, even richer the harvest it brings. We tend to think in life that we have good seasons of life and we have bad seasons of life. Let me ask you a question. In the winter, are there ever any sunny days? Think up north. Don't think Florida. <laughs> there are always sunny days in the winter in Florida. Imagine you lived in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, exactly. Are there sunny days in the winter? I think there are a few. You're destroying my sermon illustration right now. <laughs> okay, let's go to Columbus, Ohio. Are there sunny days in the... Cleveland, no... Okay. Cleveland is hell, apparently. 
this has really gone off the rails, but we have a really small group here tonight. Sometimes it makes it more challenging to preach, but now we're having some fun. We're having, now we're loose. Let's do this. All right. It's sunny somewhere in the wintertime, okay? Y'all in Florida. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> in the winter, there are sunny days. I promise you this. So there's not just good seasons and bad seasons. Sometimes within the bad seasons, there is some sun. But we all have different dispositions. And so some of us think that we're never going to get a good season. We're in the bad season. There's always something wrong. We're never coming out of that bad season. Life is just a bad season. I sometimes can be that way, that I see everything that's wrong all the time. And I feel like, oh, that good season's coming, but the good season never comes. There's others of us, different disposition. It's toxic positivity. Oh, it's, it's good. It's happy all the time. And we don't acknowledge the bad bad seasons that we're going through. Life, though, if we've lived it and we've been honest, isn't just good seasons and bad seasons. We're in a bad season. We're in a good season. It's much more nuanced than that. Oftentimes, there are two tracks going side by side down the road, good seasons, bad seasons happening at the same time. There are sunny days in the winter. Ruth, her husband is dead. She is barren. She is a Moabite. She has no food. Her only friend is her bitter old mother-in-law. That sounds like a bad season. And Ruth says, yeah, I'm living in the winter. It's hard to see God in this season, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to look for him. That's what I mean when I say an active faith. I lost my job. It's a bad season, so I'm going to go out and look for a job. That's an active faith. I'm wrestling with doubt. It's a bad season if you've ever gone through that, an act of faith. I'm going to go then read my Bible and wrestle with that. So Ruth says, we're starving to death. I'm going to look for God by going out and looking for some food. And so Naomi replies, all right, my daughter, go ahead. It's kind of a short, despondent response. And so Ruth, it says, went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Now, I did grow up in the Midwest. The winters were brutal, but it was sunny sometimes. The first job I ever had was at this little store in Paoli, Indiana, Beeler's Bilo. They sold mostly generic stuff. It was kind of the cheap grocery store in town that my family could afford. And I got my first job there. And I tried to find a picture online. It's such a small town, they don't even have a picture of this grocery store online. That's how small it is. But they had low prices. They had a generic food. I worked in the meat department. They didn't trust me with a knife to cut the meat. I was just the helper that cleaned up the mess of the meat at the end of the day. And they let me come in bright and early in the mornings to grind the hamburger, which is just the most fantastic job ever. But here's what I would see early in the morning, before the store would open, before the customers were allowed in, they would let in the local needy, poor families of the community. And they would come in and they would get to take the outdated produce, the outdated dairy, the outdated meat, which is fine to eat, just the grocery store can't sell it when it's outdated. And they wouldn't charge them anything for this. They go above and beyond. This is a small town. They would actually then take those groceries, you know, help them out to their car, put the bags in their car, just like they would every other customer. They treated these people like human beings. Jewish law, gleaning. Law required that a landowner person that had the grocery store would allow that people come in and do something very similar. They were to leave the corners of their field and the sides of their field unpicked. They were only to take one pass over their field when the harvesters picked it. And so essentially this is an ancient welfare system. It's an ancient food pantry. It's God's call on his people to show compassion for the poor. But like today, gleaning could also be a source of shame for the people who had to do that. 
be a little bit like dumpster diving for aluminum cans for survival or going to McDonald's next door and going through the trash cans to find the fries that always get stuck in the bottom of the bag. And so Naomi was despondent when she responded to Ruth going out to pick the grain behind the harvesters because she was once a respected member of this community. And now it's come to this. Verse 3 says, And as it happened, you guys aren't laughing. That's like really funny. As it happened, there's humor thrown into this story. The writer's like, it just so happened, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is the story about God. In the Bible, we see God and we see his visible hand. We see miracles. We see a burning bush. We see a talking donkey. We see him raise people from the dead. That is the visible hand of God. But we also get to see in these stories the invisible hand of God. No angel speaking, nothing supernatural. God's providence working through the ordinary. And so when you see it just so happened, it's evidence of God working, that someone is in the right place at just the right time. It just so happened. They just so happened to meet this person that God's invisible hand guided them to. It says, uh, as it happened, Ruth found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. We were introduced to him earlier, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Second time, a lot of foreshadowing happening here. Back in kindergarten in my small little town that I grew up in, it just so happened that my parents decided they were going to hold me back. I had an August birthday. I was small for the class, a little bit immature. I know that's hard for you guys to believe. So they're going to hold me back in kindergarten. But they traveled to Florida for vacation right when school was starting back. So it just so happened that I went to school. I did not want to redo kindergarten. I went straight to first grade. My parents didn't come back for a week and a half. By then, I was already firmly planted in first grade, and they left me there. It just so happened when I got to middle school, I was also in the same grade as a person named Karen, my current wife, if you don't know this. And it just so happened that Karen would never date somebody in a grade behind her. She had standards. And it just so happened that I didn't know Jesus until I got married to this Karen who brought me and helped me come to know Christ. It just so happened, God's invisible hand working through our lives. It just so happened, Ruth found herself working in the field of Boaz. She's working in this field, and she's a gleaner. She's cleaning the outsides of the field. She's young, she's a foreigner, she's a widow, and she's a she. She's very unsafe. She's surrounded by unsafe people. She's surrounded by other gleaners. It's easy target to have her grain stolen because that's another mouth they had to feed. She's surrounded by the hired harvesters. Guess what? Most of those guys are men. They would be at the very low level of the pyramid power. And so there's a human tendency for us to take frustration out on those who are less powerful. And of course, she was always open to sexual assault. It's an unsafe position that she finds herself in with unsafe people. Verse 4 says, While she was there... In that field, in the unsafe place, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He said, the Lord be with you. And they said back to him, the Lord bless you. All this back and forth is, is an Old Testament church service. It's him bringing the church, him bringing God into his place of business. The Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. 
So Boaz has brought God into his business. He's brought God's values into his business. He takes seriously being a steward of God's resources, which means he's generous to his employees. His employees probably view him as some sort of pastor. It says, then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Boaz is curious about this new person gleaning. She's gaunt, she is hungry, she is dirty. Maybe this is a romantic attraction. Maybe he's just noticing the new person that is there that hasn't been there before. I don't know which it is. You guys can discuss that at dinner tonight. But it goes on and says, verse 6, The foreman replied, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. You're on the hungry side of the law, the law is different when you're starving. And so instead of doing what she's supposed to do, she makes an even bolder request. She says, I want to scavenge for snippets of grain behind the freshly cut grain. So she's taking it a step further. The foreman says she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Verse 8 says, Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, everyone you ever meet is on a scale. There is safe and there is dangerous, and everybody you meet is on a continuum somewhere between those two places. People love to take advantage of the vulnerable, and so Ruth has to be extremely careful vetting where people stack up on this scale, who is safe and who is dangerous. Boaz goes over and he says, listen, my daughter, words matter. Ruth is working. She is sweaty. She is wearing rags. She's looking over her shoulder for unsafe people. And the first words this man speaks to her, he says, my daughter. That's my first point tonight. Safe people see others with the Father's heart. Boaz doesn't see this homeless, broke, shameful woman who is beneath him. She looks at Ruth, and he sees a child of God. He says, listen, my daughter. He goes on, he says, stay right here with us when you gather grain. He says, don't go to any other fields. Safe people, they care about your safety. That would seem like an obvious statement, right? Safe people care about your safety. Boaz says to this young woman, he says, there are a lot of other fields out there. And I know from experience, some of these fields can be dangerous. They don't accept people like you. They're not willing to overlook such a brash request that you've made here. They're unwilling to treat you like a human being. He says, be careful. Safe people care about your safety. Verse 9, it says, stay right behind the young woman working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, then follow them. Safe people introduce you to other safe people. Boaz says, there's some other women here that work for me. They know my culture. Get to know them. Do life with them. Learn from them while you explore this field. He says, I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. Safe people create safe boundaries. He says, my fields are a safe place for all people. We've built a culture to keep you safe in this field. Everyone here is on board with that culture. No one is going to beat you up. We know you're trying to figure things out. goes on, and, then when, you're, and when you're thirsty... He says, help yourself to water they have drawn from the well. Safe people are givers. 
not just of their money, but of their words, of their time. They encourage, they give of themselves. And so Boaz says, you don't have to draw your own water. We'll do it for you. In fact, take as much water as you need. And in this moment, Boaz has moved from the letter of the law, says you have to let people glean in your field, to the spirit of the law, which is generosity. He's not giving to this lady out of obligation. He's giving because he cares for her. Verse 10 says, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asks. I am only a foreigner. Kindness. Can you guess the original word used there? Hased. The love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself brand of love. The going above and beyond, in this case, for a foreigner and what they should have asked for. Kindness. Hased. Verse 11, it says, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother, your own land, to live here among complete strangers, safe people. They encourage your character. Boaz says, I've heard about you. I know you had to deconstruct that Moabite faith. You had to rebuild a faith in God. I've heard about you. You left Moab and you came to Israel. You've been a rock for Naomi. I know this has been hard. You have done a good thing. You've made great choices. I'm proud of you. Anyone here, words of encouragement are your love language, words of affirmation. I think all of us to some degree, and our tank can go from empty to full when somebody is just so encouraging. Safe people encourage your character. Verse 12, it says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Safe people, pray for you. That's a simple prayer. May God reward you fully. That is a prayer for Ruth. But there's something else that he's doing within that prayer. Safe people also point you to God. Boaz says, yes, today you are finding a safe place in my field. You are finding food in this field, but God is your true refuge. I'm glad you found this safe place for all people, but it is God who has brought you here. It's God who created this place. It's God who has been generous to me so that I can be generous to you. He points Ruth to God. Verse 13, he says, I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. Do you see how many times she keeps going back to, I know I'm an outsider. I know I shouldn't be here. So far in this book, who has comforted Ruth? I mean, she's been a rock for Naomi. She sat in the suck with her last week. But no one has comforted Ruth. And here we have a safe person, and he comforts her. Boaz, at his place of business, stops everything, all the important stuff he had going on. He slows down, he takes notice, and he gives comfort to this young lady who certainly needed it. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here, help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. Safe people make you feel special. I mean, can you imagine that feeling, that rush of emotion in Ruth's chest, this powerful man in charge of so much, so wealthy, inviting her to sit down and break bread with him at his table, treating her like his child, like an equal. 
It says, so she sat down with him and his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and even still had some leftovers. Safe people work to earn your trust and keep your trust. Boaz continues to Hased Ruth to go above and beyond. It's not a one-time deal. This is over and over. If you've ever adopted an animal, cat or a dog, you know you have to keep showing them sometimes at first over and over and over that you are a safe person and that you're not going to raise your hand. You're not going to beat them, but you're actually giving them a treat. You have to continue to earn and build that trust. And that's what safe people do. Verse 15 says, when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. Safe people want you to succeed. Boaz is setting Ruth up for success. This church has a heart for addicts. We want them to succeed. So you know what we do? We set them up for success by leaving the doors open for the space three or four times a week for them to come in here and have their meetings because we want them to succeed. Safe people want others to succeed. Verse 17, it says, So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. That is obviously a lot of grain. Verse 18, she carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from the meal. So last one, safe people are contagious. Boaz goes above and beyond for Ruth. Ruth could have eaten it all. I'm sure she wanted to, but she now goes above and beyond for Naomi. In verse 19, it says, where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked, where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helps you? And that's where we're going to end in the text tonight. But I want you to see this. Naomi, she's like, last week, the Lord raised his fist against me. She says, the Lord has made me empty. The Lord has made me bitter. Also, Naomi, may the Lord bless the one who helps you. Do you see the change? It's this whiplash moment, this dramatic turning point where our female Job finally sees a little sunlight in her long winter. This week I was started a new podcast. It's 60 songs that define the 90s. It's for old people like me, I guess. And one of the songs they were doing, like their 30, 40-minute podcast on, is the song, Hey Jealousy. You might know the song. I was going to play it for you, but stinking YouTube and Facebook would shut us down and copyright infringements and all that. But it's a happy, jingly song. I mean, it's just this really happy, kind of upbeat, positive, jangly guitar song. But it actually has a very dark message and very dark lyrics. And the podcaster that I was listening to said he didn't catch the darkness until he learned that the author of the song later committed suicide. The lyrics began to make a lot more sense. And then he says this just profound line. He says, death is the great editor. He said that. And the guy asks, well, what do you mean? He says, it changes the way we hear things, see things, and experience life. Death is the great editor. And the older we get, the more chances we have of seeing death around us. 
Death has changed the way Naomi hears things. Death has changed the way Ruth hears things and sees things and experiences life. Life for them is now viewed through that filter, through that lens of death, which can make the world a very dark place. But it's within that darkness, it's with that shaded lens covering their eyes that they are able to see the faintest evidence of light. Last week in episode one, Ruth sees a speck of light just because Naomi is compassionate to her. And she has this conversion of faith because of that light. She puts her faith in God. In episode two this week, Naomi now sees a speck of light vicariously through Boaz being a safe person to Ruth. And it breathes some light into Naomi's light-starved soul. And so we'll end where we start. Do you have a safe person in your life? Are you a safe person for others? This isn't a sermon that I'm telling you to avoid all unsafe people because all of us are unsafe from time to time and we would never be around anyone. But maybe we ought to turn on our radars and put our antennas up from time to time with those who are around us and say who is safe and who isn't. And even more importantly, we need to make sure that we are safe people, that we are praying for those around us, that we are pointing those around us to God, that we comfort our friends, that we encourage our friends, that we're generous with our church, that we create safe boundaries, that we introduce each other to other safe people, and we see each other as children of God. This man, Boaz, he comes to Ruth as she is, where she is, and he doesn't say clean yourself up. He doesn't say stop looking like such a Moabite. He doesn't say turn that frown upside down. He simply shows her said. There's another word sometimes translated from that word said, particularly in the New Testament. It's grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. The story of Naomi, of Ruth, and Boaz It's part of God's big story. It's pointing us forward. It's showing us that we are Ruth. We are the Moabites. We are the outsiders. We are the enemies of God and his people. And we are starving. And we are living in darkness. And we come into God's field, empty-handed, nothing to offer. And our Boaz, he's strong, he's humble, and most importantly, he's safe. He leaves his palace and he comes to visit us in the field. He points us to God and he prays for us and he comforts us and he encourages us and he sees us with the Father's heart and he is incredibly, infinitely generous. Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes, he is so rich in kindness and grace. There has said is used two words. That's how big it is. He is rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness, his said on us. By the time Ruth left the field that she just so happened to stumble upon, she received more than the law required. She received more than she could possibly eat. She received more than she could carry home. That's what we mean when we say refuge is a safe place for all people. We want to walk you out of this place with more. We want this to be a safe place, but more importantly, Because we worship a safe God, we want you to know that God's grace that he gives isn't just enough. It's more than even the worst darkness of life could ever overcome. And so I think it's fitting tonight that we close 
I just can't leave it behind. Verse 14, we'll go back. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the wine. I mean, in that picture, just too beautiful to waste tonight, our Boaz, our refuge, our safe place, his name is Jesus. He's inviting us into the upper room. We have that rush inside our chest that we get to now eat a meal with not just the rich person, but with the king of kings. And he takes the loaf of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, eat. And he pours out the wine. He says, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people, poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Just so happens that you're here tonight. And so the invitation of Boaz to Ruth is the same invitation from God to us. He says, come over here, eat with me, feast upon this unrelenting grace. And so as we close tonight, I'm going to have the band come up. We have tables on the right and left side of the room. You can take the bread and the juice, eat it as you make your way back to your seat. And we praise God one last time tonight.